1996, the comedy film Kingpin was released. Anybody seen it? Anybody? Yes. Okay. Yes. A first service. Not many people, I guess, are in a comedy. And it stars uh, Woody Harrelson and also Randy Quaid. <clears throat> and the premise of the story is Woody is this professional bowler, kind of braggiocious, arrogant kind of guy, and befriends Randy Quaid's character and shows him the form and teaches him how to bowl so that he can belong on the tour. And they get involved in all kinds of crazy, as what the video just said, wild living, which I guess... Bowling, A, is a sport, and B, they like to party in bowling. I, I don't, that's news to me. But the reason why they're dressed this way is because in the film, Randy Quaid plays someone that's part of the Amish community. <clears throat> now, in the Amish community, this isn't true of all of them, but many of them where I'm from. I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and Indiana was 15 minutes from where I was, and Kentucky. Pray for me. Uh, and so part of the Amish community is they would enter into a season called Rump Springer. Can you say that with me? Rump Springer. Yeah, it sounds like a 1990s hip-hop album, right? At least it does to me. So anyway, I like 90s hip-hop. Uh, Rump Springer literally means running around or to run around. <clears throat> now, I don't know if you've seen on Netflix, there's a Netflix film called The Devil's Playground, and it's about this idea of Rump Springer. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm still, I've been sick like 50% of 2019. I'm still trying to get it out of me. So if someone does exorcisms, I'd like to get this out of me. Uh, anyways, moving on. Uh, between 14 and 16 years old, um, <clears throat> folks in uh, this community can go into the city or whatever's most urban uh, away from their community and basically live it up. Like, like you could put a book on your head and learn like math through osmosis. I tried that. It doesn't work. Their thinking is you've got one year, get all that sin and all your vices out of your system and then come back to your Amish community. And then if you decide, well, at, at that point, you have a decision to make. And so if the teenager says, you know what? I really like what, how I define freedom. No rules, no restrictions. I can literally do whatever I want. Uh, I'm not coming home. Then at that point, you were severed off from the community. You had no, you're, you're not allowed to speak to your parents or your siblings. You're completely cut off. But if you decided to go home, you would experience their version of baptism and you would be welcomed back in to the community and you were never allowed to leave again. Now, you wouldn't, you wouldn't call your season of running around rump springer, would you? But you would call it spring break, wouldn't you? Sinners. Um, you, would, you would call it freshman year of college? Yeah, come on. Uh, you would, yeah, mom and dad aren't here, right? Come on. Am I, am I the only one that, that, you know, gets paid to be honest in this room? Yes is the answer, I think. Uh, but but you, might, you might call it a midlife crisis. You might call it the first six to 12 months after a really brutal divorce. We don't call it rump springer, but we've had seasons of life where we were running around, doing whatever we wanted. We, we cared so much for our family and our spouse took off. So who cares about, you know, as a Christian man or woman, the sexual ethic of the Bible? I'm going to go sleep with whoever I want because I did the right thing for a long time. Now I'm going to get mine. Or who cares about the financial ethics of Scripture and how to, uh, how, how to handle my money? My, my, my business partner took it. So I'm going to rack up and get whatever I wanted because I'm done living a frugal lifestyle. We've all, we've all experienced a season of running around. 
And it, what, what's kind of scary about that is it can go undetected, right? I swear, with church front doors, there's something magical. People instantly smile when they walk through them, right? And, and that's great. That's good. That's fine. You know, that, it's good to be pleasant around people. But, but often we can hide our seasons of running around, can't we? And the same is true for the prodigal son. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus told the story in Luke 15. Uh, the, the New Testament community would call this story a parable. And a parable is basically the artistic form of communication, of taking a top-shelf idea about who God is and what he's like and who we are as humans and grace and sin, heaven, hell, the kingdom of God, and through the, <clears throat> through the art and medium of storytelling, putting it at a level that you and I, simple folks, can actually understand. And the story of the prodigal son is a story that says everybody has great longings in their life. The question is, where do we go to fill that? With who or with what? And so whether your longings have taken you away from the Lord uh, or brought you closer to him, everybody can find the way back to God. You know, finding a way back to God is a life-changing moment, but it's also, it's also a life-giving process. And the prodigal son, much like us, <clears throat> excuse me, has to experience really five awakenings. Now, for some of us, we might hear a sermon or a song or read a Bible verse. We're like, yep, I'm ready to give my life to Christ. Let's roll. But for a lot of us, it's, it's, it's a conversation here. It's a sermon here. It's a song here. It's a discussion I had with a friend over coffee. It's a topic we discussed in our life group. And it all kind of blends and meshes together. And so we're going to explore the five awakenings that we typically experience before and during and even after finding our way back to God. And the first one we talked about last week, right, was awakening to longing. Every, doesn't, I don't care if you're a Christian or not in this room, or even non-religious. Everybody asks the question, is there more to my life? Is this it? Or, or even when I die, like, what, what, what's up with death? It, it, does all of this just go back in the box? And the prodigal son asked that question, and he did it in a very aggressive and egregious way. He went to his wealthy father and said, Dad, I know I get my share in the inheritance when you die. Please die now, because I want to go see the world for myself, why I'm young. And this is probably 17, 18, 19, 20-year-olds saying, Dad, give me my, which is an interesting concept, give me my share of the inheritance, and I want to go see the world. And, and we, last week we talked about he, he set off for a distant country, and Jesus says he squandered it <clears throat> in wild living. So the first thing that you just thought of in your head as wild living, he did it. He did it, right? It's it, probably stuff you can't see on spring, MTV Spring Break. He did it because he wanted to see what life was really all about. And he grew up, he, he, he's, a, he's a statistic, he grew up in a great loving home, a wealthy, well-to-do family. They go to church every Sunday, and yet there's this urge in him and all of us, is there more to this life? And last week, we left the prodigal son eating pig, with pigs. Not eating pigs, because that would be weird. He was Jewish. Now, I, I like bacon, but the reason why Jesus said this prodigal son was wanting to eat with the pigs is because a Jewish man would never do this in the first century. These animals are unclean. And the point of that is when we 
experience rumpspringa and we're running around trying to find meaning in our life, we do things that what? We never thought we would do. We would run, we run credit card debt out through the wazoo because we need to or someone left us and we found ourselves with a debt that we never thought we would incur. Or we sleep with multiple people because the person that we thought was going to be for us for the rest of their life left us for a younger person. And we find all these ways to squander our life in wild living, asking the question, is there more? And the second awakening we all need to have that the prodigal son has right now in this moment is awakening to regret. Jesus continues the story in Luke 15, verse 17, when he says, when he, the prodigal son, came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's Hired men have food to spare, and yet here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and I have sinned against you. There's two really critical statements, friends, <clears throat> excuse me, that, that the prodigal son says in, in the story of Jesus that's really helpful, where he decides to come to his senses. And the first statement is, he wants to come to his senses. And the second statement is, he says, I will set out and go back to my father. You cannot awaken to regret, right? Regret's not a bad emotion. You cannot awaken to regret if you're not willing to come to your senses. Now, I've been here seven months, so I know none of you are stubborn. But here's the deal. When we are so sure that we are making the right decisions, right? Right? And the non-dominant person in your marriage or your relationship is like, amen, right? When we're so sure that we're making the right decisions, we tend to not listen to people, right? There's not an Apple product that can help us listen better to our spouse, right? Amen? And we do that. We get this tunnel vision, and we're so sure we're going the right way. The prodigal son was so sure that with his $3.2 million uh, you know, money from his father, however much he had, he was so sure that that would make him financially set, it would make him happy, and he would never have to write home. He was so sure. But we get tunnel vision, don't we? And we ignore the people that say, hey, I love you. You're being an idiot. You're going the wrong way. Stop what you're doing, right? We've all been there. Uh, I I have been there more times than I care to admit. If you don't believe me, you can take me and my wife out and ask my wife all about it. Just pay for my lunch. I've been there more than I care to admit. One of my favorite scenes <laughs> in all of comedy is in planes, trains, and automobiles, right? Yes, I, I hear the, the rumbling. It's a classic comedy film in which <clears throat> John Candy and Steve Martin are on a holiday journey, and they're so sure that they're going the right way that they refuse to listen to some advice. Check out this clip. wants to race. Race is ridiculous. All right, come on. Let's go. Let's go. Put your window down! You want something? Uh, probably drunk. You're going the wrong way! What? You're going the wrong way! He said we're going the wrong way. Oh, he's drunk. How would he know where we're going? Yeah, how would he know? Thank you. Thanks a lot. 
Terrific. Thank you. <laughs> what a moron. I, I, I think we're more like Steve Martin and John Candy than we care to admit, right? Uh, we, we tend to be so sure of where we're going in life and people that love us and want good for us say, you're going the wrong way. But it's our idea, right? And so for us, we think kind of like the prodigal son, I'd rather eat with pigs or to paraphrase 2019 language, I'd rather find myself doing something I never thought I would be doing than actually humbling myself and saying, you know what, maybe I am, maybe I am going the wrong way. Uh, last weekend, we introduced you to some folks that uh, found their way back to God and s- shared their story. And today I want to introduce you to uh, a guy by the name of Guy. His name is Guy. And we're going to show his story in two parts. And this is his first part in terms of when he experiences, you know, rump springer running around wild living. Check out this video. Uh, I grew up in a, a Christian home uh, with two parents who also grew up in, in Christian families. When I was young, about seven, my, my parents moved to a camp in central Illinois, a Christian youth camp. And that was a really, really cool way to grow up, uh, just surrounded by youth groups and, and Christian kids. And coupled with that, I also grew up in the church, surrounded by a family that uh, didn't just believe it, but they lived it. You know, I had a faith, I saw how it played out in my family's lives, but I did not have a direction. And I did not have a purpose that I felt like I was being pulled towards or or called to. Just kind of searching, longing for a fulfillment that it seemed like everybody else in my family had. After, you know, searching from school to church, um, you know, the slopes of Colorado, I think I finally came down to well, I want to pursue music in some sort. And I had a cousin in Nashville, and I finally just said, all right, let's go, let's try it. And then I moved down to Nashville, just hoping to find music or write or play, or I wasn't really sure. Um, And just started bartending and waiting tables. Alongside that was was just a a life of partying, uh, pleasure, I mean, just fun. Uh, It was great, I'm not gonna lie, it was, a blast. I had a lot of fun, but it's also very unhealthy. It just became continual. Just meeting girls and and drinking by five years in. I had moments where I laughed at myself 
and knew fools do this, you are living like a fool. Probably a year and a half after that, six and a half years in, uh, by that point, it was serious. It was drinking every day as soon as I get up uh, because I would have a horrible hangover. And I was starting to think, this is gonna be rough making a change at this point. What I appreciate about the first half of Guy's story is the willingness that he was willing to wake up to regret and to be honest with where he was. And he wanted to come to his senses. Richard Rohr, theologian, author, once wrote, you cannot heal what you do not acknowledge. Come on. How many do we do that in church? Like, how long have you been here and people don't really know what's going on in your life? Like, this church has been around 17 years. Like, have you been here 17 years and nobody really knows what's going on in your life? We, we do it all. It's called hide and seek. We do it all the time, friends. You cannot heal what you do not acknowledge, and what you do not consciously acknowledge will remain in control of you from within, festering and destroying you and all of those around you. You know, it's interesting with, um, I don't know, sin, poor decision making. We think we're in control, and we think we have it on lockdown, but it has us on lockdown, doesn't it? It has, it has us under its control. There's this this we, like you can't arrest someone for sin. That's not a legal term. But there's this sense that the things that we are engaging in, whether we realize or want to admit it or not, that thing is also engaging in us. And we think we're dominating it, but it's actually dominating us. And I think that's I think with Guy and the prodigal son, and hopefully with you, hopefully with me, you get to a sense like, wait a minute, maybe I'm. Maybe I'm just in over my head. And this is the part of the story that is going to be a gift to you. It's going to be a gift to us as a church. Because what Jesus is talking about, again, this is a parable, so this is not a lecture, this is a storytelling. <coughs> Excuse me. What Jesus is going to do for us is he's going to teach us the gift and the value of repentance. That's a fun word in 2019. Uh, because, you know, 20, 30 years ago, my experience was the, the most popular verse in the Bible was what? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he sent a son, all that stuff. Now the most popular verse in the Bible is out of Matthew, which says, don't judge unless you want to be judged. But there's a difference, right, if we're being honest, between being judgmental and being judicious. And so many times of our friends that aren't involved in a church only think that the church is all about you know, hellfire and brimstone, repent or be damned. You're going to spend eternity in hell. And, and we think as Americans and Western thinkers, we're very black and white, almost like engineers. But engineers didn't write the Bible. Hebrews did, and Hebrews think more like artists. And in the Bible, there's two dominant concepts of repent. This is so beautiful. I almost want to hold on to it, right? But someone in the first service just said, just get on with it. So I did. Uh, the first word in the New Testament for repentance is metanoia. It means to change your mind or to change your thinking. It's where we get the English word metamorphosis, right? Caterpillar, butterfly, that whole deal, that whole process. But, but I think we stop, <clears throat> excuse me, if I'm honest, I think we just stop there. You know what I'm saying? Because for a lot of my 
upbringing, and, and I don't want to project this on you, but a lot of my upbringing and listening to different preachers and pastors, it was, let me tell you about Jesus. Here's what he did. Now you need to repent and believe. It's sort of this very much like linear cognitive thing, <clears throat> which changing your mind is necessary in terms of the repentance process. Oh, but friends, there is a, there's another word for repentance that I, I would even argue is, is more beautiful than changing your mind. See, in the Hebrew, the word for repentance is teshuva. It means to return. It means to go back. It means to go back home. And so when, the, when Jesus tells the story that the prodigal son came to his senses, Jesus is saying he's practicing metanoia. He's changing his mind. Surely, surely I can go home and, you know, dad may hate my guts, but maybe he'll let me like wash the dishes in the kitchen. Maybe I can just be a hired servant or, or maybe I could just work the land, mow the grass, clean the cars. You know, it, it'll be awkward, but, but hey, it might not be a father-son relationship, but maybe, maybe I can get in and have an employer-employee relationship. At least I'll have food in my belly and a roof over my head. Yeah, I, I need to change my mind. But here's, I think, something more beautiful and more artistic and more lovely about the gospel. He didn't just change his mind. He got out of the pig pen and started to practice teshuva. He actually started to walk home. I mean, how many of us, whether we were a wayward child or had wayward children, <clears throat> that in their uh, 20s and 30s cut off all ties with their family. Now, some, sometimes, I don't want to get into it, but sometimes that, you know, for boundaries, that could be necessary and healthy. But here's, here's the deal. If you're a parent of a wayward child and they live a thousand miles away and on a Saturday morning at a Starbucks, they're reading the scriptures and the spirit compels them to, you know, stop running and they just change their mind and now they like you, but they never come back home like, that's not good enough for you as a parent. You want to see your kid again, right? I, I, I would think so. And, and so many times we limit repentance as just this cognitive experience. I've intellectually made up my mind that Jesus is God. He died on the cross for my sins. He rose again. Now I need to become a Christian. But what messes up a bunch of Christians that keeps them religious but not free is that they never teshuva back to God. They never walk back to God. And here's what walking back to God does. Walking back to God is this <clears throat> beautiful unraveling of your running around. It, it, it's Jesus coming alongside of you. It's the local church coming alongside of you. It's your, <clears throat> excuse me, your life group coming alongside of you. And, and, and loving you. Is this starting to make sense? This is more than just a cognitive, okay, I need to make a decision about theology, but I also need to come to the end of myself. Does this make sense? And the reason why we don't come back to God is because our identity is, I am the worst thing that I've ever done, right? We, we, we get this from work too. I am what I do because a paycheck brings meaning. But theologically, we also have this false self-narrative and idea, <clears throat> excuse me, going off in our minds that says, uh, I am what I have done. And what I have done is so egregious, I've heard this before, that if I walk into a church building, it's going gonna, it's gonna to collapse, right? That I am what I've done, and that is so egregious to the Lord that he would never 
take me back. So we cognitively say, okay, I repent, I forgive my sins, you know, get baptized, give me the shirt, I'm good to go. But we never throughout our Christian life unravel ourselves. We never let the Spirit draw us to come to the end of ourselves. There's a reason why you're stubborn. Did you know that? There's a reason why you have anger issues. There's a reason why you treat the opposite sex the way that you do. There's a reason why you're not comfortable with silence. There's a reason why you believe the way you do and vote the way you do and and present yourself the way that you do. That is much more and much bigger, this cognitive metanoia of, okay, I'm making a decision to repent. No, there needs to be an unraveling in your life of what the Lord is showing you. And so repentance is, it's, it's, it's the same thing all at the same time. It's making that decision. But then as you walk with the Lord, the unraveling process is the Spirit is saying, hey, you need to find a church to belong to. You need to get in a life group. You actually, you, you, you may need to go see a counselor. And we're pro-mental health here. That's a good thing. You're not a weak person or subhuman if you see a counselor take medication. What I'm saying is the repentance process is more than a moment. It can actually be a season of your life where the Lord is just, I mean, just unraveling all of the rump springer that you engaged in. All the things that you've done to yourself, all the things that you've done to other people, and yes, all of the things that other people have done to you. And Jesus says when he, when he awakens to his senses, he doesn't, he doesn't change his mind like he's in some like academic debating hall. No, no, he wants to go home and see his father. And he begins the long trek. Now, now think about this. Let's just have a moment here. We don't know how far he walked <clears throat> away from the father. So it could have been a week. It could have been a month. It could have been a year. All of that time, he's with his thoughts, wondering, will the Father take me back? Will he allow me to be his son again? And, and he, here's, just, here's just the truth of it, okay? I've been in ministry too long uh, to, to not say this. Here, here's the truth of it. If we, don't, if we just settle at changing our mind and we don't enter the difficult, the difficult, you will cry you will need a counselor. You will need a church. You need to make church a priority. You need friends to talk to. Like, it's not just changing your mind, but if you enter into that unraveling out of the other end, you'll find out your true self, your true identity, the, the way the Lord looked at you when you were being born in the hospital. Did, did you know that? That the Lord was interested in you when you were born? Not the first time you actually went to a church service and the preacher started talking about Jesus. He, he He's been part of your life since you were a young boy and a young girl. And here's what happens. If we don't make the walk back, we're going to get stuck in this sorry cycle, this constant negative feedback. Woe is me. I'm a terrible person. I'm a terrible mother. I'm a terrible father. I'm a terrible parent. I am the worst of my mistakes. And we ask ourselves these questions. Will anyone accept me? Will they take me in? Could God ever forgive someone like me. And with a resounding yes, <laughs> repentance says, yes, there is a path for you to come back home. This is the beauty of the gospel message, that no matter how far we've wandered, we can come back home. And, and, and listen, 
We need to come back home multiple times because we live lives and seasons, and there'll be seasons of our lives where we tend to, you know what, thanks, Dad, I'm going to go kind of do my own thing. We need to be reminded, no, we, we can come home, and we do need to come back home. Let me, let me before I close up here, let me, let me make a um, pretty bold ask of you. There are many of you that are <clears throat> thinking about being baptized. Uh, there are many of you who have said to me, well, I was baptized when, when I was a kid uh, during my church's uh, baptism services. Um, I don't think I need to do that any, I- anymore. L- l- let, me just, let me just lovingly, pastorally say this to you. Um, baptism is your decision. And it's your decision after hearing the gospel message. And when people are baptized in the New Testament, all right, just, we're just totally doing away with, and, and I don't mean to sound harsher, we're just, l- l- let's just kick denominationalism to the side. And what does the scripture say? The scriptures say when people hear about the story of Jesus, that they can come back to God, that they can teshuva, make their way back to God, the response to that has always been to express themselves publicly in baptism, right? To let, to, for you to come out of your house on the front porch and say, here's, what's God, here's what God's doing inside of my house, inside of my life. Does that make sense? Next weekend, next weekend's going to be powerful, you will be moved to tears. The Spirit will be moving. And I'm not saying like that to be a television evangelist, all right? I've got good hair, but I don't know if I have the face for it. Let me tell you something. We're going to provide you an opportunity to say, I want to be baptized. I need you to be here next weekend. And I need you to find some friends that maybe this is the first time they're ever at a church service. And we're going to make a direct ask if you believe the Jesus story, that you've wondered from God, that he died for your sins and rose again, then we're going to ask you to express that publicly in baptism. Now, we're not going to have baptisms next Sunday, but we will provide an opportunity for you to express that publicly. And I would pray that you'd be sensitive to what, the God, what God is laying on your heart and communicate that next weekend. I already spoke with someone after the first service today about it. I want to close by saying a, a prayer that we said on week one. And so this is the prayer of regret. We're gonna put this on our social media outlets. And it's just a simple, simple prayer. So if praying freaks you out, if you don't know how to do it, here's a simple prayer that you can take this week. God, if you're real, make yourself real to me. Awaken in me the possibility that with you, I could start over again. I think this is the prayer of the prodigal son. God, if you're real, If what the preacher is telling me is true, (laughs) if you're real, awaken in me the possibility that with you, I could start over again. This is the gospel message, that when we come to our senses and awaken to regret, we can actually go home. And here's the second half of Guy's story as as he makes his way home. I was pretty functional. Uh, considering. Went to work and maintained this I party every night kind of attitude and I partied openly every night so that when people would smell down me the next day it was normal because well guy parties every night. I was at my sister-in-law's house uh, checking on their house. They were in South America uh, for his work and I was drinking and I just had this totally normal moment of going, this has to stop.
I, I, I have to stop. I, I will die at some point from this if I don't. And I couldn't stop that night because I had to work the next three days and I knew it's gonna be ugly and I won't, I won't be able to work. I knew after Wednesday night at work, I would have four days off in a row. So I prayed to God that night. I said, God, I need to stop drinking on Wednesday. <laughs> so please keep me safe for the next three days. So that night, Wednesday night, I went back to my sister and brother-in-law's and took my last drink and went to bed. And I would say I woke up four or five in the morning with immediate DTs. This was not a, a day later, this was hours. And I mean, I couldn't see straight, kind of hyperventilating. I'd had one before, so I knew exactly what it was. I'd had the doctor explain it to me. So that started Thursday morning, really early before the sun came up, and that just went all day, all night. Friday, all day, all night. And I should have, you know, been with a doctor, nurse, been at a rehab center, something just to make sure I was okay. But uh, as I was laying there, I just kept remembering this prayer from a book about a Celtic monk that I loved growing up. My dad introduced me to the author. The prayer that he goes to anytime he doesn't know what to do is, Lord have mercy. And it's just, he repeats it. It just becomes this meditation. Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. And that's what I did from, from Thursday morning till Saturday, knowing the whole time and kind of laughing at myself that like, I really don't deserve this, this mercy, this grace, but asking anyway and receiving it. Saturday morning, I think the last DT was around 11 o'clock and I got up and I started drinking water and started keeping water down. And Saturday night, I finally slept fell asleep, crashed out, and got up the next day and went to church. That was pretty much my first response. Talked to the campus pastor that Sunday morning and said, this is where I'm at, uh, what, what can I do? Who can I talk to? How can I get connected? 